Did you hear that question? <laughs> if I could talk a little bit about, as I understood the question, the, in a way, the dangers of the perspective of practicing bodhicitta by always putting others before oneself, because in some way, if it's not done well, it's done badly. <laughs> and it can be done badly in several ways. It can be done badly in the sense of it really becoming a source of pride. Oh, look how wonderful I am. I'm putting everybody else before myself and it's really self-aggrandizement. It can be done badly if it fosters a sense of unworthiness. Oh, everybody is better than me. You know, and it just feeds into that place of unworthiness or self-abnegation. And that also is not very healthy. The piece that resolved this for me, in a in a very uh, dramatic way. For years, I had been reading and studying and hearing about the Bodhisattva vow. You know, this is the vow to become Buddha, or the vow to be enlightened for the benefit of all. Okay, so this is like the ultimate expression of Bodhicitta. And I was tremendously inspired by it, but it just seemed too much. I just didn't see any possibility of my saving all beings. It seemed inconceivable that I could do this. And so I just kind of put it aside as a nice idea, but not that relevant for my own practice. It was just a few years ago, maybe five years ago or six years ago, I was hearing one of my Tibetan teachers talk about bodhicitta. And you know you can be sitting with something for years, and then you hear something and it just something changes. Something changed as I listened to his talk on Bodhicitta. And what it was, was the understanding that true compassion is the expression or the manifestation of emptiness. Emptiness means selflessness. That compassion, even the Bodhisattva vow, is the expression of selflessness. So it's not that Joseph suddenly had to take on saving all beings. Because if we put it on the shoulders of a self, it's way too much. There's nobody who has shoulders that broad. But to see that 
the more we experience the truth of selflessness, that there is no one there at the center of things. Compassionate activity flows from that place of emptiness. There's no one doing it. It's the natural expression of that. Then it's not resting on the shoulders of the self, of an I, of an ego. It's simply compassionate activity. You could think of it as the natural responsiveness to situations. Nobody is doing anything. Just making sense. It's just, as soon as I could take it off of I, that's when it all became possible. And so, in putting others before self, I think you want to be practicing that as a way of understanding selflessness, not as a way of, obviously, of aggrandizing self. And we reach limits. You know, we're not yet fully enlightened or fully awakened. And so, sometimes we need to retreat. It's too much. You know, there's the glitch of self at a certain point, and we can't let go. So I think it, I think it needs a lot of compassion for our own process and understanding of our own process. The question was about one of the problems with compassionate that, he, that comes up for him in compassionate action has to do with the issue of diversity or lack of diversity in the Buddhist, or at least this part of the Buddhist Dharma scene, uh, and how to uh, work with that. Um, It's an issue that I feel very uh, strongly about. Um, and it touches, as you well know, profound issues in our culture. And this is not a simple, this is not a simple thing. Um, for myself and I think at least for some others um, I feel that we need to take some very proactive uh, outreach in terms of bringing together a greater diversity of people in Dharma practice and it's happening very slowly. Just one very small thing that I'm involved in, and this is like a drop in the bucket. <laughs> but it's, again, it's something that really touches me deeply. Um, 
for the past couple of years, I've been teaching uh, with an African-American guy from Cambridge, Boston area, a retreat for people of color uh, at this place in New Mexico. And this particular retreat is for activists, activists of color. Um, and it's been tremendously inspiring to me because it's opened me to a world that I just didn't know was there. You know, and that itself was shocking to me. And it was, it's like to be part of a society where such an immense amount of suffering is going on and just because of the conditions and circumstances of my life had very little connection to it. And so just doing that one little piece for me personally was tremendously opening. And I think for the people who attended the retreat, It was just a wonderful connection with the Dharma and the Dharma practice. I think this has to this has to happen a zillionfold. It's a uh, it's a tremendously important question. I, I, in some way, I think it is the defining situation of our culture. You know, and we we all know the tremendous, or, we, or maybe we don't know, and that's the problem. You know, the tremendous uh, suffering that comes from not being aware, and it is it is really beautiful and inspiring to see that the more willing we are to come close to different realities from all sides. That's where the compassion comes. If we're distant, if we're away from it, there's no possibility. You know, because we're not seeing it, we're not feeling it, we're not open to it. So in some way, I think each one of us has to find ways to make those connections. Did you hear that in the back? Or? Uh, she was saying that, and you're not alone in this comment, 
this one uh, that often comes up, how to understand or the difficulties, the unease of understanding uh, equanimity and selflessness in the face of tremendous suffering. And the example was given of uh, just two neighbors, uh, basically children getting killed by an automobile driving in through the fence and now, how, how could the family possibly, or the parents possibly, hold that with equanimity? You know, or even if that's desirable. You know, kind of how can all that be understood? Um, obviously, there's going to be a tremendous amount of suffering in that situation, and that's natural. I'd like to again throw out something that may be difficult, but I'll just throw it out and you can reflect on it in your own way. And it's hard to talk about it because it is around very sensitive, tender issues. And it's particularly hard to talk about it in California. But I'm going to do it. <laughs> and that is an invest- uh, the possibility of an investigation of the difference between grief and loss. You know, very often our suffering suffering comes about in our own experience because we're not totally clear about what we're experiencing and different emotions sometimes get mixed up. You know, they happen together, they get very intertangled. Just as another example before I go on to that one. I mean, for how many of us have love and attachment gotten really bound up with one another? They are two very different feelings. Love, the feeling of love, at least in my experience, is this quality of a generosity of the heart. It's this. Attachment is this. They're completely opposite energies. And yet, for most of us, in our intimate personal relationships, love and attachment have gotten very, very intertwined, very hard to separate them out. Which is why there is often difficulties in our intimate relationships, because we haven't sorted all that out. Okay, that's just an example. With grief and loss, just as a way of highlighting a possibility of understanding the difference. Two stories from the Buddhist time. In one of the discourses, the most famous discourses of the Buddha on the foundations of mindfulness, 
it starts by saying this is the way to mindfulness for the overcoming of grief, sorrow, lamentation for the realization, attainment of peace, the unconditioned. And it goes on and on like that. And so the Buddha is saying, yes, this is the way for the overcoming of grief and all these other things. So presumably the Buddha himself, being fully enlightened, had realized that. That's the implication. That's one story. The second story is the Buddha's two chief disciples, their names were Sariputta and Moggallana, were older than he was and died before he died. Very close and, according to the Buddhist legends, close for endless lifetimes. When they died, the Buddha described it as the light of the sun and the moon disappearing from the sky. It's a very powerful image. I mean, that sense of absence, of loss. I mean, you know, the people that you're closest to, it's like the light of the sun and the moon left the sky. So at a certain point, I try to put these two together. I try to understand, well, how could he say that? You know, with such poignancy and such depth of feeling on the one hand, and on the other hand, the enlightened mind is free of grief, sorrow, lamentation. How do these two fit together? And when I started looking in myself and trying to get an understanding of it, I began to explore the possibility that there is a difference between the feeling of grief and the feeling of loss. And that grief arises, and it arises quite naturally for us, so I'm not suggesting this because of it, but that the feeling of grief arises because of a non-acceptance of the feeling of loss because it's so painful. And for most of us, the feeling of loss is very painful. And to the degree that we cannot open to the pain of that, it rebounds into the feeling of grief. And as I said, this is natural for most of us. But there is another possibility if we begin to examine or look in ourselves where we accept the loss. It's not denying the loss at all. Just like the Buddha described, this is like the the light of the sun and the moon leaving the sky. Can we be open to that feeling, as painful as it is? That's what equanimity in that situation would mean. It doesn't mean not feeling the loss. It means acceptance of the loss. And so there are ways of really looking. And I would like to say with all of this, and with everything I've said this evening, please don't believe it. It's not a question of belief. Everything that I've said is an invitation to look. That's all. You know, it's like, 
can we look, can we observe our own minds to come to understanding? And so we each find for ourselves what's true. So these are just suggestions, you know, possibilities of ways of looking. Okay, maybe last question. The question was, in the mud, when do I know when I'm getting a toehold and when I'm losing a toehold? I think that really, that situation really points to the need for uh, a good teacher. I mean, a teacher is very helpful in really guiding one because there are Just to use another image, using that image of ice and water. You know, we could think that we have dissolved the ice, melted the ice, and are just in this state of free-flowing water, but really it's slush. <laughs> you know, it's not water at all, it's just caught on something more subtle. And so having guidance, somebody from the outside who has experience and can track what's happening is tremendously helpful. So I think if others of you would like to come up and have some more questions, there's a little more time, but maybe we can formally end. Thank you very much.